got Lula's visit from Latin America, therefore it's seen not really only as a Brazilian visit, it's a whole Latin American visit. And therefore, this the, the potential for, for the coming period is that the trade between China and the global south and south-south trade in general is going to be more dynamic than the trade between the global north and the global south. Indeed. This is an important new feature of the situation. Macron has said that European nations need to choose not to be vassals of the United States. You know, when he leaves, he makes this comment where he's really, I think, trying to claw back this older image that France generally used to have, that it had a foreign policy that was independent of the United States. And I think he realizes very much so that Europe is in danger right now of becoming trapped in terms of a dependency on American oil, American security, and the American dollar to pay for the oil. President Lula is quite clever by not uh, taking uh, any sides in the um, China-US confrontation. That's good. And uh, for Macron and uh, some other European leaders, I believe uh, political courage is greatly needed. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. The world has witnessed um, state visits to China by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and French President Emmanuel Macron over the past 10 days or so. Joining our discussion on the impact and implications of the visits are John Ross, Senior Fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University of China, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and Jiang Shixue, Professor and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies, Shanghai University. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. So first, we take a look at the achievements made by the two state leaders, um, respectively. Let's begin with um, President Lula's visit to China. After experiencing some unexpected delay, the president of the biggest developing country in the Western Hemisphere finally conducted a state visit to the biggest developing country in the Eastern Hemisphere with an expanded delegation. So what is the most interesting signal you've received from the composition of the Brazilian delegation? I'd like to have answers from uh, all of you, but it's Shishuan's first time on the show. So shall we start with Shishuan, please? Okay, thank you. You know, nowadays, uh, any country's leader would like to um, have a big delegation of uh, business leaders to accompany him to visit foreign countries. Uh, this is the way of doing the so-called economic diplomacy. So it is very natural and logical for Lula to have a big delegation of uh, businessmen. And that will be a very good opportunity for the business leaders to meet each other so they can get to know more about each other to seek any kind of business opportunities. So I believe that this time the businessmen from Brazil will have a big surprise, I believe, to find out that there are so many business opportunities waiting for them mm. in China. Yes, but we noticed that the uh, the delegation was expanded by adding, I think it's 12 members of, of the Congress, right? So what's your finding there, um, Joseph? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, we're hearing from the Brazilian side is that, uh, of course, there are several objectives with this visit. The first, obviously, is to try to 
put relations back on a better track. They had kind of gone off track, not severely, but they had been disrupted somewhat by Bolsonaro, uh, Lula's predecessor. And clearly there's a desire to foster more trade. As Professor Zhang noted, Brazil exports most of it, the largest share of its products to China at this point. And um, China is their biggest trading partner. And of course, there's the other issue. Lula is very interested in trying to build this shared effort to mediate peace in Ukraine. Mm. But my sense is that the expanded roster of, of delegates is related primarily to Dilma Rousseff's the inauguration the of the uh, NDB, the, uh, the New Development Bank. Right. Dilma was the president who succeeded Lula from his first term in office. Mm. They're very close allies. Yeah, and he attended the, the swearing in. So my sense is that part of it was to uh, have that... Um, shared opportunity of a, of a deeper uh, political, you know, sort of victory lap, not only for him, but for Dilma and some of their colleagues in Congress. Right. John, so what's your understanding of the expanded um, delegation and uh, anything about the composition impressed you? Well, yeah, I would agree about the importance of Dilma Rousseff being head of the New Development Bank, popularly known as the BRICS Bank, All right. because she's a very, very important uh, political figure in Brazil. And they put her in a job which is on the question of BRICS. I think that Lula has a, a slightly difficult situation in Brazil because he doesn't have a majority in the Congress. So therefore, he's got to do deals, put it in a blunt way, on various aspects to get, it, to get through parts of his policy. And But he, in the field of foreign policy, as, as in many countries, the president has more leeway to do what he wants. And he's therefore obviously decided to um, prioritize BRICS. I think that's very important. And if, I've, I've watched the video when they got together there. The body language was really, they're really very good friends. It was mm. very clear. And uh, the second thing I would say, though, is that the under Bolsonaro in particular, the Brazilian economy has undergone a sort of regression. I mean, it used to be the case that the biggest um, export from Brazil was aircraft. And it's now gone back to being the biggest export is, being, is soya beans. Well, OK, well, obviously they want to export soya beans. Yeah. But I know that uh, Lula is very concerned with reindustrializing the country, improving its technological level, etc. I noticed that he's visit Huawei as one of his first visits. Mm. I, I think that would annoy the United States no end. But nevertheless, it's a good thing. And he wants to find ways to upgrade Brazil from the type of economic sort of regression that it underwent under Bolsonaro. So that's the things I would know. In, in addition to the obvious thing, the delegation is very big and there are a lot of soya bean exporters on it as well. Right. And according to Brazil, two-way trade has increased um, 20 times since Lula's first visit to China in 2004. And this time, the Brazilian delegation is going back home with over 20 bilateral agreements on agriculture, like uh, John's just mentioned, uh, livestock, uh, tech, uh, tourism, and so on. So how can these deals help two of the you know, world's biggest emerging economies at the time of uh, global economic uncertainty, John? Well, the, the main focus of the world economy for more than two decades has been the growth in the global south is faster than the gr growth in the global north. If you take it in purchasing power parity terms, that is, you're correct for prices, um, as opposed to the somewhat artificial prices which are created by official exchange rates, the global south economies, that is, the developing economies, are already larger than the developed economies. And by far the two biggest, most rapidly growing economies in the world is number one is China, and number two is India. And so therefore, that the whole weight of the global south is developing very much within this situation. And there are two outstanding figures I mean, in the global south. Obviously, all countries are in principle equally important. But nevertheless, 
in the real world, unfortunately, big countries have more weight. And the two biggest ones in the factor are Modi, who's pursuing his own policies, and Lula in Brazil. And Lula's visit from Latin America, therefore, is seen not really only as a Brazilian visit. Mm. It's a whole um, Latin American visit. And therefore, this the, the potential for, for the coming period is that the trade between China and the global south and south-south trade in general is going to be more dynamic than, than the trade between um, the global north and the global south. And this is an important new feature of the situation. So therefore, the question of a, a very important leader, a very, very important developing country, Lula, coming to the biggest developing country in the world in terms of its economy, that is China, is obviously a very important uh, step in this. Mm. Then which deal you find most exciting? Well, all of them. I understand the strategy. Lula's got a difficult situation because the Bolsonaro really did a tremendous amount of damage to the Brazilian economy because he was really, you know, in the pocket of people who wanted to cut down the Amazon rainforest, uh, people who wanted to be big soya producers, etc., etc., and not really the development of Brazilian industry. And this was a real regression. I mean, Brazil was not, as I say, its largest export export used to be aircraft. It had the, one of the most successful regional aircraft producers in the world. It couldn't match Boeing or, or Airbus, but regional success was incredibly strong. It was a very, very important manufacturer of cars. And that has gone backwards towards sort of more commodity production under Bolsonaro. So Luda's got to deal with the situation where he wants to turn that round very clearly, very consciously. Mm. He hasn't got a majority in Congress to back him up on all these things. And he's therefore very, very interested in all deals which do, one, develop the existing product. He um, he wanted to want to export soya beans, livestock and all sorts of agricultural products from Brazil. But he'd also be very interested in anything which helps to take the Brazilian industry forward. And there's a logic to this, which is, you know, China is now almost not a developing country. Two or three years time. I mean, I know it legally it is a developing country and that's very important to maintain. But in about two or three years time, by World Bank classifications, it'll be high income economy. And that's leaving a place, therefore, is for other developing countries to do better, some things which China used to do better. So Lula wants industrial upgrading as well as commodity production. Right, right. What about you, Joseph? Well, you know, I don't look at it so much from the economic perspective. Mm. Uh, The thing that I am focused on is Lula's political position, as John noted, his his problem without uh, not holding a majority. And he does need to rally business support in Brazil for his policies. And I agree with John that one of the problems with Bolsonaro was the industries that he favored, but also the fact that he did such a a poor job in international relations, uh, he didn't really really have a go global approach. And what you need to do is have that in order to create opportunities to, to export your products. Now, China is in a position where it's promoting imports. And and we may see, you know, the import expo aligning with some of these Brazilian interests. But I, I concur that Brazil is going to face some challenges competing. I've talked to some consultants who work with Brazilian companies. The, the consultants say the biggest problem that they run into, and these are Brazilians who've been living and working in, in China for a long time, based in Shanghai, what have you. The biggest problem is that uh, Brazilian companies, they don't really understand the sophistication of the Chinese market. This problem is made all the more difficult by two factors. One, that there was this change in policy under Bolsonaro, but also one of the little secrets of the COVID period is that the Chinese market became even more sophisticated. Yeah, but of- two-way trade increased 20 times, uh, you know, in in less than two decades. You're saying the Brazilians are not familiar or know little about this market. 
What we're saying is that a lot of that trade increased in non-manufactured goods, more agricultural goods. So anyway, this is one issue, but there are two things here about Lula that I can bring to the conversation as I'm not an economist. The first is that Lula is kind of celebrated as a leftist or maybe what we might call a legacy leftist, but he, he is very much a pragmatist. You know, one of the things that we haven't pointed out is that before he came uh, to China, he went to the United States. He wants a close relationship with both countries. He wants to do business with both countries. He's certainly trying to articulate and, and put in place an independent foreign policy. He's not uh, following the United States down the dark path of, of decoupling or China containment or any of these sorts of things. But he's one of those new generation of South American leftists. Evo Morales was another who uh, ultimately became darlings of Wall Street, became you know darlings of globalization. So he's got his work cut out for him to, to try to like uh, advance because you know every everyone right now is trying to to move into the post-pandemic world, but also you know the new era, what China calls the new era, and what the United States is trying to you know characterize as great power competition or a new Cold War. The biggest deal for me is I think uh, that the NDB is moving forward. And Brazil has been the biggest recipient of Chinese investment in, uh, I think, the Western Hemisphere. Mm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting opportunities for new major projects, BRI, Belt Road Initiative projects, like the building of the subway, I think it was Sao Paulo. So these these are the things that are capturing my attention. As far as the, the actual trade or business issues, it's a little beyond my scope. Right. But there are some other uh, observers especially those from the West, are paying a lot of attention to two of the deals. One is the uh, arrangement of um, RMB settlement. And prior to Lula's China trip, the two sides struck a deal to support the bilateral trade settlement uh, conducted in the Chinese currency, the RMB or the RMB. So, um, well, those, those currencies will be used, and, and yes. that is a major development, a major development. It's part of a much larger trend that we're seeing globally away from the dollar. And this is something that the United States finds very, very uncomfortable, but it's something that other countries are really moving towards because, you know, they've seen what uh, the U.S. did with the dollar after 2008. They saw what the U.S. did with the dollar in 2020. They see what the U.S. has done with the dollar in terms of the unilateral sanctions imposed on Russia in the wake of the conflict in Ukraine. So, you know, Modi has a post-dollar plan. We're seeing transactions between France and China now, between Russia and China, between uh, various other countries that are looking past the dollar. And it indicates not necessarily the coming crash of the dollar, but a post-dollar dominated uh, global financial system that has tremendous implications for everyone in the world, but, but most probably the United States above all others. So yeah, that's one of the biggest pieces or developments to come out of this. Mm, and some analysts are saying that it might favor uh, the Chinese side more because um, they say it's an important milestone for RMB internationalization because there are three stages of um, internationalization. First is the uh, global use of RMB in small-scale international trade. And then in commodity trade, finally, um, the transformation of RMB into a reserve currency. And with Brazil's deal, the second stage of RMB internationalization is completed. I'm not sure whether this makes any sense to you, uh, John. We'll have to listen to yeah, it, the economists. It makes economist. sense, and we've got to understand what's taking place. It's, there's two aspects to this. There's a strategic one, and there's a, um, a tactical one. The strategic one is that you can only have one price unit in an economy, in the global economy, otherwise it won't work. Or to be more precise, what will happen, you'll have arbitrage and you'll have one currency which will emerge as dominant. There's only been two currencies in the entire last 500 years 
which have been dominant. First was gold and the pound, but the pound was merely a surrogate for gold. And second was the dollar. And you can't have multiple prices. And that's why there's a limit on what can be done with the internationalization of the RMB, the present time for a tactical, uh, then it comes on to a tactical reason. The RMB is now a very attractive currency. Um, it's stable. It's backed up by the very powerful Chinese economy. And in principle, it could replace in the relatively near future the dollar. But there's two tactical reasons why it can't. One is China has to maintain capital controls because otherwise you will have a gigantic outflow of capital from China and that will greatly damage China's economy. And the gain from the internationalization of the RMB would be much less than the loss that would come from the abandoning the capital controls. Mm. And that means there's a limit on the exchangeability of the RMB. The second is that China runs a large trade surplus. What that means is that there would be a shortage of RMB in the world economy, and that would create problems for liquidity, whereas the US runs a huge balance of payments deficit and therefore can flood the world economy with dollars. So you have two things. On the one hand, every step that can be taken to de-dollarization is desirable because you have the United States is carrying out what you might call gangster type operations. Mm. That's why all sorts of people want to get out of the dollar. I mean, it, it seeks 300 billion of uh, Russia's foreign exchange reserves. It carries out sanctions which are not supported by the UN against all sorts of countries. And every country with a sensible view wants to get out of the dollar. On the other hand, there is a limit to what um, can be done. And I think the dollar for some period of time will continue to be the dominant international currency. I wish I could say otherwise because of the behavior of the United States. But there will be an increase, particularly by countries which are threatened by the United States, of, of use of other currencies. But there's a sort of limit to what can be done for the reasons that I gave. So we're looking here at a transition which is going to take place over 20 years, not over the next two years. Sure. And uh, another eye-catching deal is on the joint construction of uh, China-Brazil Earth Resources Satellite, or Severs six satellites. It's it's a model that has improved technology that allows for efficient uh, monitoring of biomes such as the Amazon rainforest, even on cloudy days. So, um, how important is such cooperation? Would that deal be frowned upon by any other country? Well, you know, China is the largest uh, developing country in the world, and Brazil is the largest developing country in the Western Hemisphere. So we can expect that uh, cooperation can go on in every field. So we often say cooperation between China and Brazil can be in the sky or down on Earth or even uh, in the ocean. Many years ago, China uh, launched uh, more than one satellite for Brazil, as well as for other Latin countries such as Bolivia and Venezuela. Uh, now, the new satellite uh, simply means that um, high-tech cooperation would continue to move forward. And I believe in the next few years, high-tech cooperation will be carried out in such a field as 5G or Huawei or things like that. Mm, but would this deal seem so simple, especially in the eyes of uh, Washington, Joseph? Well, you know, I think clearly with uh, Lula's decision to very conspicuously visit Huawei, he, he's thumbing his nose in a very direct way at, at the whole Washington technophobia, fear-inducing narrative uh, that we've seen not only directed at Huawei, but all of Chinese technology, all the way down to uh, TikTok or Douyin in, in local parlance. But the issue is, you know, clearly when you, when you look at the way the United States is leading uh, tech decoupling, 
when you look at um, uh, how the United States froze China out of the International Space Station years ago, how China went ahead and built its own space station. And there will be a time in the near future where the Chinese station will be the only one up in the air. It's very interesting. There, there, I think there are bigger implications than just that they're cooperating on this satellite. Uh, assuming that relations stay warm and cordial, uh, we might see expanded cooperation in areas that Washington would find very uh, uncomfortable. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back after the break. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are discussing the impact and implications of the state visits to China by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and French President Emmanuel Macron. Let's move on to the other state visit to China, the one by French President um, Macron. So I would ask the same question again. What's the most eye-catching economic deal to you, John? Oh, well, the, the economic aspect to it is um, the question of Airbus. I mean, which is the, the the degree of orders which China has given for Airbus is going to allow Airbus to considerably expand its production. I mean, this is a thing which the United States brought itself brought upon itself. I mean, why should country any country like China been attacked by the United States to continue to buy Boeing big time? It's I mean, China will continue to buy some Boeing, but it's perfectly logical to give uh, support to Airbus and to orders to Airbus. The Airbus deal is um, very, very, you know, France is the core of Airbus production. And that's very thing. It's been overshadowed a bit in the West by all the all the remarks about uh, Taiwan by Macron. But from an economic point of view, therefore, hasn't got the significance that it has. But this is this is the case. Why why should China, if continue to buy um, high technology from the United States, if there are alternative sources, when the United States is trying to um, disrupt and uh, destroy China's high tech industry? You know, Boeing's going to suffer a lot out of this. And uh, they were brought upon it by U.S. foreign policy. I mean, it's against the U.S. policy is against the economic interests of the United States. But unfortunately, it's not going to stop the United States pursuing it. So if to return to the economic question, it's the Airbus orders. Right, right. And uh, Shizhe, what's your pick? Well, yes, uh, some kind of uh, cooperation in the field of energy and aviation. Yes, they are quite eye-catching. Uh, by saying eye-catching, I think uh, the U.S. will be the target. The U.S. will not be very happy to see that uh, China and France uh, have a deeper cooperation in the field of uh, uh, producing airplanes. But well, it's the U.S. itself which wants to lose the market. Why you want to contain China? So uh, I think uh, serves the U.S. right, and uh, hopefully that uh, other European countries will follow suit will go on the way of uh, uh, further cooperation. Now, we have to talk about uh, the China-EU uh, Bilateral Investment Treaty. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure whether the obstacles for the EU-China Investment Treaty will be removed very soon. Uh, this is an issue of politics uh, as well as economic cooperation. Mm. And talking about politics, um, our expert on geopolitics, um, Joseph, I guess you would have a different um, choice. 
Actually, the, the thing that uh, I found most oppressive about his visit from uh, an economic perspective, I agree with John that the Airbus deal is, is significant. But what I found most impressive was his decision to visit uh, Guangzhou mm. and to take a delegation of French business leaders down there, but also to meet Guangzhou. Uh, they have a, a consulate. That France has a consulate in Guangzhou. They've got uh, trade advisors, uh, French trade advisors working in Guangzhou. They understand the growing role that the Greater Bay Area, what, what, you know, what we call in China the GBA, is playing in not only in China's economic recovery, but its, it's continued long-term strategy for growth. And it's clear that uh, Macron has good advisors who wanted him to be down there. I've lived in Shanghai for a long time, but but I've, I've been visiting Guangzhou recently. It's alive and buzzing with a sort of like development fever that I last felt in Shanghai around 2010, 2011, 2012, you know, in the wake of the uh, expo that we had here, the, the World Expo. So the fact that someone convinced him to go to Guangzhou to represent French interests down there, to meet with uh, local French businessmen who are already uh, building a position in the market in the GBA and where that might go with a stronger inclusion of, of Macau and Hong Kong coming, that to me signals uh, not just a, a short-term deal, but, but more of a long-term strategy. Mm. We'll talk a little bit more about his Guangzhou trip uh, later, but I'm surprised that Joseph didn't choose the agreement between the armies of both sides. You know, they've signed a 51-point joint statement, and uh, the Southern Theater Command of China's army, which is primarily responsible for the South China Sea, will deepen dialogue with the French Asia-Pacific Command, which is based in French Polynesia in the Indo-Pacific region. So that seems quite unusual, isn't it, Joseph? What messages does it send out? Well, I think we have to look at this in the context of the comments that have sort of roiled Europe, where Macron has said that European nations need to choose not to be vassals of the United States. And this is upset uh, a number of countries. There's, there's reports that the foreign minister of Germany will come and try to walk back. That Macron has somehow demonstrated that there's a lack of unity in Europe on China policy. So, so Macron and Lula, they both have something in common. They're both facing some domestic political challenges. But Macron is facing a lot of political headwinds right now. Uh, I don't think he's facing imminent political danger, but there are some in Europe who think that he is. So where I'm going with this is that before the uh, conflict in Ukraine started, Macron was one of the few major leaders in Europe who was really working against the American narrative in certain ways to try to forestall that conflict from uh, advancing. And then he ran into a problem in his domestic politics with uh, Marine Le Pen, where uh, she ran a close race with him. They had to go to a runoff. And in order to win that race, he characterized her as a Putin lover. And so he had to run away from his more moderate position on Russia. And, you know, now, so he wins the election. He has uh, started moving back towards a more moderate position on Russia. But he's also suffering a lot of challenges in domestic politics. And when a lot of leaders like this suffer those kinds of challenges, they tend to go on the road to look more presidential. And that's what he's done. He's, he's come to China. But he's turned around now. So one of the interesting things is, like Lula, he wants to promote peace in Ukraine. He encouraged that when he met uh, Xi Jinping, and, and, and I think encouraged to position China to negotiate this. Um, and then, you know, when he leaves, he makes this comment where he's really, I think, going trying to claw back this older image that he also used to have, but that France generally used to have, that it had a, a foreign policy that was independent mm. uh, of the United States. And I think he realizes very much so that Europe 
is in danger right now of becoming trapped in terms of a dependency on American oil, American security, and the American dollar to, to pay for the oil. Um, so he's, I think he's very keen. And you know, we did see, uh, what was it, uh, a week or so ago, the first uh, French-China exchange, uh, energy exchange, I think it was uh, natural gas, where it, it was done without dollars, but with RMB. So there, there is this, this movement afoot. Now, in terms of what it means, so I, I think we have to put all of that as the context and then look at this deal on the, with the French Asia Pacific Command. Clearly, this is moving in a, in a direction that's very different from AUKUS. And we know that France uh, was very unhappy with the AUKUS deal. Yeah. Uh, we know that it alienated France. We know that that had an economic implication for France. But the fact that, you know, not only did the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia create a new bloc uh, that excluded France, they also did so to economic to, to France's economic harm. So it's interesting that he's moving in these, you know, sort of multiple directions at one time. Okay, on the one hand, sort of moving in a very deliberate way, contrary to AUKUS, but also uh, more broadly supporting uh, Chinese efforts to uh, advance peace in Ukraine, but also opposing what we might see as one of the, uh, America's broader strategy, which is to small block build in Asia to try to expand NATO, but further uh, make uh, Europe dependent on NATO and, and American energy. Mm, indeed. Actually. Can I... Can I- can I add one comment? Sure. Well, if you compare Brazil with France, I think there is a very uh, clear difference. In France or in some other European countries, there are quite a few people who say that uh, Europe or France needed to reduce its economic dependence on China. Okay, that's very clear. But in Brazil, I, as far as I know, almost as a, there are no people who suggest that Brazil should... Uh, reduce its economic dependence upon China. So that's a very, very uh, big difference. That means in order to promote uh, China's uh, cooperation with France or other European countries, we need to deal with this kind of uh, fear of China or China threat. But in Brazil, well, I think uh, this kind of cooperation uh, would have less obstacles. Mm, but at least both leaders, uh, they want to convey a very clear message that they have their own independent policies uh, on varied issues, be it uh, the Ukraine crisis or, you know, technology blockade. Yes. Yeah. And, well, uh, you, know, you know, Chinese people, uh, including Chinese scholars, are quite happy to know that Macron said some words on his airplane from Beijing to Guangdong. He said that uh, France and Europe should uh, reduce uh, its uh, dependence on the US. Europe uh, or France should have the so-called strategic autonomy in terms of its foreign policy. Yes. However, after Macron went home, it was reported that, uh, well, he was seriously criticized. So it's really quite a pity that uh, why people in Europe are so fond of the US. They want to be the the copycats uh, of the U.S. I think that's within, yeah, that's within expectation. And as you said, uh, on his trip, well, this message is very clear, like uh, Joseph just mentioned, uh, France and other European countries, they, from the, you know, the bottom of their hearts, they don't want to be vassal states anymore. Shisha, you mentioned an interesting um, episode during Macron's trip, and uh, another interesting scenario uh, also occurred uh, 
uh, when Macron was um, introduced to an ancient tune on a guqin, and uh, it's a seven-string Chinese instrument. The music is a, is a thousand-year-old uh, piece about uh, soulmates having a good understanding of each other. And uh, the guqin was made around uh, 754. That's the year when, when Bipin, the short, was um, anointed afresh, becoming the king of what later became today's France. It also marked the beginning of uh, French ascendance in Europe. To some observers, this arrangement seemed to, to remind Macron France is a big power and it doesn't have to be someone else's pawn. I don't know if uh, Macron understood the meaning of the arrangement, but as you said, Macron said Europe, France included, must resist the pressure to become one of America's followers and achieve more strategic autonomy. Shizue, you mentioned that there are a lot of um, criticism on Macron, but as long as he's got this determination to do so, he might achieve some progress there. But my question to John, how determined do you think Macron is to push forward that goal? As someone, you know, from Britain, you must have an all-round observation of France, you know, the thousand-year-old foe or friend of Britain. Well, the, the point that Macron will confront with the United States attempts to undermine him if he continues on this path, it should be quite clear. I mean, I was the morning after Macron's um, remarks, because I'm, you know, I'm an economist, I watch, I watch Bloomberg with them on for breakfast because I want to catch up with what the markets are doing. And, and, and they were in a frenzy, absolute frenzy. They said, you know, basically, what is this doing? The, you know, what is the, you know, the vassals are becoming independent. How dare this person dare to differentiate himself from the United States over the question of Taiwan. Yeah. This is completely intolerable. And they had um, people, uh, some American politician on, I've, I unfortunately I switched it on just as he was speaking, I didn't catch who it was, you know, saying this is completely intolerable. We, we could go back to the time of the Iraq war. At the time of the Iraq war, France and Germany refused to go along with the Iraq war. They said it's going to be a disaster. They were absolutely proved correct. Even in the United States, it's generally recognized that the Iraq war was an absolute disaster destabilizing the Middle East, costing the United States gigantic sums of money, unleashing Islamic terrorists, etc. But the United States set about removing the leaders of France and Germany being in that position. They did so successfully. Mm. The United States will, if Macron says not words, he goes down that path, they will attempt to remove him. And therefore, he's got to be prepared to stand up to that. Well, I hope he does, but I'm not so certain that he will do. I mean, this is the difference, for example, to Lula. We know what they've done. They have pursued an independent foreign policy. Macron, will, if he takes the slightest element of independence, will face an attempt to remove him by mm. the United States. They, they interfere all the time in the internal affairs of other countries. Yeah, for, I've also read somewhere that uh, U.S. intelligence agencies are, have started to, to try to take some action against Macron. But do you think Macron will cave in, uh, Joseph? Well, Oh, all right, Sorry. John. No, no, Joseph. Do I think he'll cave in on European pressure to tow a certain line no, against or China? U.S. pressure? I don't think he will. I think Macron has calculated rightly that he won't face a significant political backlash in France over this issue. So the the, the issue with Macron is that he's president until 2027, and he's the first French president who will be at some point and maybe already what in the United States we call a lame duck. This was a term that was being used when he was trying to push through the pension retirement age law late last month. 
and we see this uh, escalating political crisis that, that still hasn't died down in France. So part of it is that he is in control. He's certainly in control of foreign policy until 2027. Uh, so he has a tremendous amount of latitude to make decisions like this. I don't see him reversing course because he doesn't have to. He can't stand for re-election. There's now a three-term limit. So he doesn't have to answer to voters. Mm. He doesn't have to answer to voters on his foreign policy. And I think he's betting that having better relations with China is going to be good for French workers. It's going to be good for the French economy. And so all he has to do is sort of weather this this difficult moment. He's also betting that uh, I think that if France doesn't play uh, a role in trying to forestall this this American decoupling, that it it, uh, beckons a much darker path not just for France or for Europe, for the rest of the world. And here, I think he is, he's thinking about his legacy, his historical legacy. We, we see this in leaders at this stage in their career, where they're not thinking about re-election, but how they're going to be remembered by history. And I think he's very keen to be remembered as being on the right side of history, as not potentially joining an effort that, that could see not just decoupling, but a new Cold War and and possibly even a new war. You know, this is what a lot of people are concerned about when we're talking about uh, uh, American geostrategy, whether or not the United States uh, is sort of fantasizing about uh, turning Taiwan into the next Ukraine or something like this. I think he's very keen not to be part of that trend. And if that includes having a little a little military communication in the in the South Pacific, if it includes thumbing his nose at uh, the UK and the US and Australia over the AUKUS deal, I think he's fine with it. And and I again, I don't think he's going to face much uh, political backlash at home over it, because uh, most of the people who are opposed to him are opposed about other issues. Uh, so it's almost like a, a perfect opportunity, I think. You're listening to The Chat Lounge. We'll be back right after this. Don't whine. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers. Welcome back. You're listening to The Chat Lounge, and we are discussing the impact and implications of the state visits to China by Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and French President Emmanuel Macron. Can I ask a question for John and Joseph? What kind of question? Uh, once I asked the former, at that time he was uh, the EU ambassador to China, uh, I asked him why the EU cannot achieve strategic autonomy in terms of its uh, foreign policy. Why the EU always wants to be the copycat or the follower of the US? Then the former EU ambassador to China was very angry. He said, no, 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 you Chinese people misunderstood our uh, foreign policy. So Joseph and John, do you believe that uh, the EU always wants to be the follower 
or copycat of the U.S. in terms of its uh, foreign policy. Why it's so hard for the EU to have strategic autonomy? That, that sounds a bit far from today's topic, but it's related. But uh, I'm not sure.、Uh, maybe John, you can give a brief answer and、uh, continue with、uh, t- to answer that question of、uh, whether Macron can make any difference in this regard. Well, there's, there's two aspects to it. One is the first. One is about Britain. Britain' problem is that it no longer has the military power to safeguard its international interests, and the British political establishment of the latter part of the 19th century. Had a very strategic debate, a very open debate, with the rise of the United States. It concluded it only had one of two choices: one was to fight a war with the United States, which there were people who favoured. The, the particular form this took was that the Britain should intervene in the American Civil War on the side of the Confederacy, because that was the moment at which the United States was weakest. And they were put aside by those who said we can't compete with the United States. Instead, we've got to become a subordinate partner of the United States, so that the United States can guarantee our international interests. That was the conclusion of this debate, which was very public, very conscious, and that's been their position for the last hundred and twenty, hundred and forty years. Europe is slightly more complicated because you have two elements in the situation. One is that the European labour movement is much stronger than the one in the United States, and secondly, there's the question about the, you have a very powerful country, Russia. Which is on the borders of Western Europe. We should never forget the the only the last politician who can be said to have pursued an absolutely relentless anti-U.S. policy was Adolf Hitler, and he was who was prepared to fight a war with the United States. His precondition for doing so was to eliminate all of the labour movement and all democratic rights within Germany. And as long as there is democratic democracy within Europe, the European Ruling establishment feels that it's threatened if there's political instability, and it looks to the United States. So it tends to capitulate to the United States. So there's two different things. One is what's happening in Britain, and one of what which is happening in Europe. John, do you think Macron can succeed in what he's trying to do? It depends how serious the issues become. If the issues become very serious, and the United States puts enough pressure on, then I think Macron, well, France. Will capitulate. This is a different thing because Macron may decide to stand up to the United States, in which、mm-hmm. case they'll set about the United States will set about removing him. The United States wanted to get rid of Chirac、uh, because Chirac was stood up to the United States and succeeded. The United States wanted to get rid of Schroeder because Schroeder stood up to the United States and succeeded. So let's not talk about Macron. Talk about France. Right. Will France pursue a policy independent of the United States as long、oh. as the issues remain about the economy? The situation becomes not too hot. Yeah, I think that it's possible they will. In any way, other countries should take advantage of、um, that. If the United States really puts on the pressure, will France stand up to the United States? No, I, th- I think not.、Mm. I think the situation is different in the global South, where they will stand up to the United States. In Europe, I don't think they will. I wish they would. At the moment, he, he may stand up a bit because we're not a. You know, an absolute crunch time. I mean, over the question of Ukraine, when it came to a war, basically all the European countries have capitulated to the United States because they supported the expansion of NATO, and it's the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe which caused the war. No one in Europe was prepared to stand up and say, "No, this is a bad idea. We're against it." So you're saying so, France,、uh, the rest of Europe, might not be able to achieve any more strategic autonomy. If it becomes really hot issue, if the, it depends how much the United States can succeed in polarizing the world. At the moment, it's not going very well for the United States. Most regions in the world are not going along with the United States. Asia isn't for developing Asia for a long time has refused to go along with the U.S. They don't want a cold war in Asia.、Uh, the Middle East 
people have not wanted, they're moving more, as you see with Saudi-Iran deal, they don't want to go along with the United States. Latin America, led by Lula, does not want to go in the United States. It's Europe. I mean, Ian Bremer, who's the, one of the chief analysts in the United States, head of the Eurasia group, said the United States is rather lonely, actually, internationally at the present time. Most countries don't like what it's doing. Unfortunately, but, mm. Europe is one of the, one of the few places where they are doing like what it's doing. I, I hope that this trend of independence will spread into Europe. It's not determined by things. So, if the United States has a big economic problem, then it may become friendly again. Yeah. Um, it so it depends what happens. Right. Of course. But what they want to do, what they don't want to do, is one thing. But what they can do is another thing. And it seems that President Lula. Is also in such kind of a situation. I may ask a Shuja. Do you think deals, such deals as uh, the RMB settlement and the joint construction of satellites, would trigger any raised eyebrows, especially from those states? Because, you know, Washington always think Brazil, also with the other Latin American countries, should be the backyard of the states. Do you think Brazil can withstand the pressure from the U.S.? Yes, as you mentioned, that uh, the U.S. always believe that uh, so Latin America is its backyard. The U.S. always wants to maintain its traditional sphere of influence. So any movement which is favorable to China will be considered as a kind of a threat to the national security of the U.S. Uh, but uh, well, if you are not happy, then uh, how can you uh, stop? this kind of um, cooperation. So it's really very hard for the U.S. to stop China's cooperation with the region. I don't mean that uh, the U.S. Uh, is no longer the superpower, but uh, the U.S. cannot uh, dictate to the countries in Latin America, although uh, it can continue to use the policy of uh, carrot and a stick. But I don't believe that um, the U.S. can achieve everything it wants to achieve in Latin America. China will continue to push forward its cooperation with Brazil and other countries in the region. Mm, but do you expect um, any interference or intervention moves, I mean, from the U.S. side? I'm going to pose this question to our only American guest, uh, Joseph. You know, I, I think that um, this goes back to an earlier question that was that came from Professor Jiang. So th there is this myth of European unity and a, a willingness of Europe to follow the United States. This myth has never really been the case in Germany. It's never been the case in certain parts of Eastern Europe. It's never really been the case in France. It has accelerated in certain parts of Europe. Uh, the Netherlands, uh, the UK, possibly Norway, uh, maybe some of the countries that have more recently joined uh, NATO. But you know, this we have this idea that Macron has somehow revealed that there's a lack of European unity on uh, the China issue. Uh, I don't think that there was ever uh, European unity. We go back to before the conflict began in Ukraine, and we had uh, the EU, Russia, and China talking about uh, finding a way past the petrodollar. Mm. So, you know, there's Europe has always, uh, I think, tried to and, and, and the formation of the EU itself and, and the establishment of, of the euro as a currency, as a counter to the dollar. This has always been uh, a very clear objective in terms of my view. I'm going to advance sort of a, a, a controversial thesis here, which is if we go back to uh, what we saw with Obama, late Obama and then during the Trump administration, 
and it's it's accelerating with the Biden administration. What you have in some respects is a strategic retreat by the United States. The United States in the post-Cold War period overextended itself tremendously. And uh, everyone knows this. You know, it wasn't able to win a conflict in Vietnam. It wasn't able to win one uh, in Afghanistan uh, more recently, right? And so whenever it, it, it goes too far. Uh, and so we see the U.S. strategically retreating from the Middle East. But as they're strategically retreating, they're also trying to create clear, what's the right word here, like a new lines of control. So we're going to back up, but we're going to try to absolutely have control and influence and hegemony over this area. So, for example, um, I think we see this as the strategic objective in Europe. We see this with uh, the United States under Biden in just the last month, significantly expanding oil drilling and uh, controversially in Alaska, greatly upsetting environmentalists in the United States that have supported him with the understanding that the U.S. may soon become one of the, the world's leading oil producers. And where does he hope to sell this oil? To Europe, uh, having you know broken the European uh, you know, buying Russian oil pattern that the U.S. has always hated. So, uh, and again, uh, Europe was doing that, and especially Germany was doing that. You know, okay, we, we will depend on, we'll have the EU, we'll depend substantially on the United States for security, but we'll depend on Russia for trade. It was this kind of like middle ground that they were trying to occupy between these great powers. And ultimately, it was untenable. But I think Macron understands that there is an existential threat to the whole EU project right now. So, you know, can the United States bring a lot of pressure to bear on Macron? Absolutely. I'll go back to a curious little thing that surfaced, and I don't know that this was true, but it was reported in the media, that when, you know, they were discovering the classified files at Trump's home in Florida, that one of them was a, a file on Macron, right? That they had a personal file on Macron. So why did uh, Trump have that? And there were, you know, some allegations that maybe there was some sort of sorted details or, or scandal, perhaps in the files. This was what was being speculated in global media. Who knows? But you know, could the U.S. target Macron and, and come after him and do whatever they could to embarrass him? Possibly. I don't think they could really do that to Lula, but perhaps they could. But the thing about uh, Macron is I, he is relatively untouchable until 2027. And he has chosen the right path in terms of the, the situation in Ukraine, but also increasingly, we should say, he's returning to his senses on Ukraine. And likewise, his, his desire to reach out positively to China. I think he feels rather confident um, that he can hold the line. And uh, I, I hope that he's right. I don't, I don't think he's politically naive. So we'll see. John, I think you've got anything to add or? No, I, I, I don't. I'm not looking at the purely short term. I Because I, as I said, I think there's two different things. I, it's very difficult to judge what an individual person uh, will do. And um, other people know more about this than I do. And so I'll, I'll defer to them. What I'm looking at is the more broad term things. That's why I prefer to look at what France will do yeah. rather than what Macron will do. And it's true that de Gaulle, took a policy in which on a number of important matters definitely went against the United States. I mean, he, he his recognition of China, his relations with the Soviet Union at that time, his withdrawal from the military structures of NATO. This was real things which the United States didn't want. But when he was confronted then with becoming unpopular and discontent in 1968, the famous May 1968 riots in France, he began to reverse this, move towards the United States. And since then, France rejoined uh, the military structures of NATO and Gaullism, Macron may be independent, but Macron is still a quite pale shadow of what de Gaulle did 
so France, if the United States really puts some pressure, at least in the present circumstances, without a big shift in the world, I don't think will stand up. But at the moment, things it's not, as they say, push comes to shove. There is some room for manoeuvre. Uh, and France, I think, will continue to use that in the present uh, time. And, and anyway, in serious matters, you've got to use every single inch for manoeuvre that you can get. So I'm very pleased that France has done some good deals with China. That's excellent. Let's we'll, we'll see what happens. I hope they, they continue down the same path. Let's hope uh, at least Macron can do something there. And uh, probably, uh, like Joseph just mentioned, the U.S. cannot do anything to sway Lula, right? So Brazil yeah. is definitely able to withstand the pressure from the states? Well, uh, I think so, uh, because uh, compared uh, with Bolsonaro, I think um, President Lula is quite clever by not uh, taking uh, any sides in the um, China-US confrontation. That's good. And uh, for, for Macron and uh, some other European leaders, I believe uh, political courage is greatly needed. If you really want to develop a cooperation to promote a relationship with China, you need to be politically wise. So uh, don't put uh, anything on the political side. Well, I want to say that Deng uh, uh, Xiaoping is well known for its uh, two cats theory, okay? And don't care about uh, the color of the cat as long as they can catch the mouse. Well, for Europe, if there are business opportunities, investment opportunities. Why do you care about uh, these opportunities come from China or come from other parts of the world? Okay, nowadays it's in the age of globalization. Okay, so do not uh, politicize the economic uh, cooperation between China and Europe. That's uh, a good wish. Probably what we need is a little bit more patience. And um, let's go and see. And with that, we come to the end of today's discussion. Many thanks to Xiang Shishue, Professor and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and John Ross, Senior Fellow at Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Fremi University of China, for sharing your insights with our listeners. If you have any comments on the topic or on the show, please feel free to leave a message for us. Just search Chat Lounge. You can find us on all major podcast platforms or send us an email to radio at cgtn.com. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. We'll see you there.